This morning's reading is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah is speaking about himself in this chapter. And the Lord, of course. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, Lord, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oath leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Donald. Let's see if I can do this. Well, it's lovely to be here with you all this morning. Um, what an amazing passage. Uh, I was just struck by it again. But why don't we begin by prayer? Lord, we do thank you that you are with us by your spirit. You speak to us through your word. We ask that you would open our hearts now and that you would show us fresh your glory and your might, and your plan of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, it's lovely to see you all and to worship here with you, and really a privilege to bring um, the word and this passage this morning. Uh, as you heard from Sam, we were asked to bring um, a passage, I'll say one of our favorite passages, I won't say this is my all-time favorite, but it is up there 
call it a top five passage if I had to pick. Um, and I love it for many reasons. There's so much we could pull out of it. Um, but really simply what I love is what it tells us about God, what it tells us about ourselves, and what it tells us about his ways. Um, very simply, it tells us that God is holy, that we are not, we are sinners and can't stand in his presence, but that he is the answer, that he is our hope, our only hope, by the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, his son. And when we know that, when we have the full picture, it's amazing. It's the full gospel. If I had to have a, an alternative title for this, it would be the full-orbed gospel through a keyhole. You get a really a, quite a big picture of the gospel through this little passage, this little chapter in Isaiah. So I'd like to look at those three sections, and after each section, I'll ask us some questions to reflect on, because I'd really like us to sort of pour through this. It's, it's quite a deep and heavy passage at times. Um, but I'll first start with a little bit of a story and then, and then a question for each of you. Uh, I think some of you may know I went to West Point, which is a U.S. military school, and we used to have dignitaries come from time to time. And, uh, and in my mind, I was in awe of some of these people that would come through. And one time, I was, I was chosen to be in a small group uh, to meet with the Secretary of State, kind of like the Foreign Secretary here who, again, was this giant in my mind. And we got in this room, and we were sort of had cocktails, or not cocktails, actually. Um, and we were standing in a group of five or six of us asking him questions, and he was telling us stories, and the Gulf War had just ended, sort of sharing his experience with us. And, um, and as he started talking, and he was, he, was, uh, he was from a southern state, I sort of wasn't impressed with his, his twang, and then at one point in the conversation, he actually was drinking a Diet Coke, and he pulled an ice cube into his mouth, and he started crunching on it. And when I asked him a question, he sort of spit it back into his glass and answered me. And I thought, oh, wow, that's quite base. This, he's not that special. <laughs> he's not that set apart. Um, and that sort of, that sort of knocked, knocked him and really most dignitaries and my awe of people uh, down quite a notch. Uh, but I thought I'd ask a question to the audience here and those of you watching online. Has anyone ever met the Queen? Anyone ever been in a small group or a, an audience with the Queen? I would imagine that was quite amazing and probably a very different experience. I don't think she would spit her ice cubes back into her glass, David. Um, she's quite majestic. Um, and for those of us that haven't met her, and I have not, of course, um, we can at least picture her on the throne and her robes and her crown and the scepter and the orb. It's a majestic sight. But how much more majestic is our God, the King? She even worships the King, the Lord Almighty. And we get that picture here uh, in the beginning of this passage. But I think what's of interest is that we don't get much of a description of God. He actually says in, in Exodus, he says, no one can see my glory and live. And, and there isn't much of a description here, but we do get a description of the activity around him. And that's what struck me first, that we see these creatures that are holy in themselves, sinless, in fact, singing out to him, holy, 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 but so removed from him in a sense that they've got to cover their eyes and cover their feet because he's that holy. He's thrice holy. We get the activity of the doorposts and the threshold shaking. We get the activity of the temple being filled with smoke. I mean, this is otherworldly. This is truly holy. This is something that is not of earth and of creation. And that is impressive. 
We also get this picture that God is communal. And sometimes this can often be overused, I think, in the modern church, but he truly is a God who desires to commune. We know that the Trinity have been uh, pouring into one another continually throughout all of history. And now we get a picture of sort of a heavenly royal household um, with the Lord being praised throughout by these creatures. And we, we see in creation that he's communal. It, in the fact that he creates us and desires to have a people for himself, the whole story of the Bible is him redeeming a people for himself. Right? We see it here, of course, and we, and we see it at the end of the Bible. We see it in Revelation, that he desires to bring us to himself, to have this wonderful wedding banquet and feast where we're all joining together in celebration and in worship together. This is the God we serve. He desires to be with us. That is amazing. But we have a problem. The problem is that, as I said earlier, he is holy and we are not. He is also just and sin can't stand in his presence. And we get a picture of this duality of God in Isaiah. If we look, uh, I'm sorry, in Exodus, if we look in chapter 34, God speaks about himself. He says in chapter 34, verses um, six and seven, when he passes before Moses, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So we see there's a consequence for sin. And the consequence is death. And it's woe, as Isaiah Isaiah has the only proper response to sin and a sinner before a holy God. Woe is me, I am ruined. Jesus himself says this actually in Matthew eleven twenty, when he pronounces woe on the cities in which he's done miracles and prophesied because they don't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, because they didn't repent. It's the only proper response. And actually, God wouldn't be holy if he wasn't just. How could he let sin stand in his presence and in the end not have a right judgment? We know this from our own experience. We desire judgment, in fact. So... At the end of this section, just to reflect, I'd like to ask us, do we think enough of God? Do we think, not just do we think about him enough, but do we think enough of him? Do we exalt and magnify him enough? Do we understand his holiness enough? I think we could spend our entire lives actually trying to do this and not quite get to the place we need to be, but we will one day when we see him face to face. But do we think enough of his holiness, of his otherness, of his majesty, And do we think enough of him as a righteous judge that will judge perfectly? I think the second thing that we can look at is what this tells us about ourselves. And, you know, we we can sort of examine ourselves endlessly. Um, I'm just going to give us a few little ways to do that. But it's very clear from Isaiah that our sin is not... We, we can't hide from it. It's inescapable, right? Isaiah would have been one of the most righteous men in the land then. And again, his initial and only response is, woe is me, I am ruined. So our sin, whether it's acts that we've done, acts that we haven't done, thoughts that we've had, 
thoughts that we haven't had, or just the fact that we're sinful by birth, our original sin, it's, it's sort of like a mire. We can't get it off of us. And we need to recognize that. I think, you know, we just had the confession, and Sam, you did a wonderful job of framing it for us, that we need to repent, that we need to say sorry to God regularly, not just once a week, but, but minute by minute. But we oftentimes just call them mistakes. I slipped. And there is a wonderful sense in which God is our Father and He welcomes us. But we also need to, at the same time, hold this idea of our sin, however slight it may seem, being a crime of high treason against the king, worthy of the death penalty. And I think, especially in this self-help society where we need to feel good all the time, we tend to play that down, which would be understandable if we didn't have the whole story. But when we know, as I said earlier, that we're adopted, that we're his children, then we can delight, we can have hope, and we can have joy at the same time as having that fear and having that uh, repentance, that acknowledgement that we fall short and need to turn. And the wonderful thing about this equation, so to speak, is that we don't need to bring anything. We don't need to bring our righteous acts. We certainly can't bring our righteous acts and have them count for anything. Or who we know, or what we've said, or prayers that we pray. All we need to bring is a turning. Just a turning away from our sin and to God. And He does the work. So the wonderful thing about this passage that we see is that it's all God. And again, this is the theme of the Bible. He's the one who acts. The coal travels from the altar to Isaiah, almost as he's saying, I'm ruined. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it, of the redemptive work of God. And that's the way God operates. And we see it all throughout the Bible. We see it in the father running toward the son, in the prodigal son, before he's even He's, he's, he's scouting him. He sees him on the horizon. He runs to him before he even gets to the village or the, the house that he's running back to, right? We certainly see it in Jesus invading our earth. He doesn't set some bar and say, jump over it. He comes to us in a lowly estate. Um, so we only need to repent for salvation once. You're only raised to new life once. But we, even as believers for however many years or decades, need to repent continually. And I think, certainly in my life, um, I I can't get enough repentance. I need to repent minute by minute. Um, And again, we can take all kinds of time to think about the things that we've done, the things that we haven't done. Um, Because even even our thoughts, even our sort of vain thoughts, not about God, idle thoughts, are sin before a holy God. And we get a picture of this just to assure you and, and also encourage you um, from Paul in Romans 7. And I'll just read a bit. Uh, in Romans 7, verse 18, Paul says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. And then he goes on wrestling with this sort of duality in his relationship. And then at the end, toward the end of that chapter, in verse 24, He concludes, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's his answer. And that's how we can wrestle but also know that we are rescued 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So my question at the end of this little section would be, do we weight our sin heavily enough? Or do we flippantly just say a quick prayer, think we show up on a Sunday morning and can recite something on a screen and and that's good enough for God? If we know that he wants all of us, then he wants all of us to be turning at all times. It's an ongoing act. And it's also, and I think Paul shows, shows this to us, this is, a, is an increasing, this sensitivity and awareness of our sin is an increasing sign of holiness, of actually growing in holiness. The more we grow like God, the more we'll recognize our own sin and want to run from it and turn from it. And it's an amazing transformation, isn't it, that Isaiah has. He goes from this, again, almost in a very short span of time, it seems, from being, woe is me, I'm ruined, to send me. You can almost see him on his tippy toes, send me. He's, he's eager to get out there and serve the Lord because he's been cleansed, because he's been made new. He's a new creation. And again, we see this in Ephesians. Paul so succinctly summarizes in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 2 this whole picture of the gospel. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So he did make us for these good works. This is a picture of the gospel in action. We go from death to life for a reason, to serve the living God with joy and delight and to actually be woven into his plan of salvation. Through our worship and through the work that we do, by simply speaking the truth. So I finally ask in the section, are you eager to serve him? When you get that picture of Isaiah on his toes, reaching out, send me, with an exclamation point, does that describe you? I know it doesn't describe me. Certainly not as often as I'd like or as eagerly as I'd like. But that's where we need to be, striving. Not counting the cost, not holding back. He wants all of us. And that's part of his plan. So we finally look at his ways. What do we know about his ways? We know that they're not our ways. And I think Rachel uh, quoted this passage actually later on in Isaiah 55 where he specifically says that his ways are not our ways nor his thoughts our thoughts. They're so much higher, so much better. And uh, you might not be surprised to hear that I'm reading a, because someone else has had it up here recently, a book by Bonhoeffer. Um, I'm sorry, a book by Eric Metaxas on Bonhoeffer, but he quotes Bonhoeffer. And I'm just going to read a quote here because this speaks to this idea that God's ways are not our ways. If it is I who determine where God is to be found, then I shall always find a God who corresponds to me in some way, who is obliging, who is connected with my own nature. But if God determines where he is to be found, then it will be in a place which is not immediately pleasing to my nature and which is not at all congenial to me. This place is the cross of Christ, and whoever would find him must go to the foot of the cross, as the Sermon on the Mount commands. This is not according to our nature at all. It is entirely contrary to it. 
But this is the message of the Bible, not only in the New, but also in the Old Testament. And I thought an amazing description and depiction of how God's ways are not our ways, and a good little test that if God's always to our liking, maybe we're not really listening and not really hearing because he doesn't seem to always act that way. Certainly not here. Do you think Isaiah expected to get the response that he got? He was eager to serve. He didn't ask any questions, and he gets the response that he gets, which is essentially, go and make this people hardened in heart. Not an easy message to receive. Forgive my water break. Um, But the good news is that all we need to do is testify. All we need to do is declare. Again, there's no work we need to do. We don't need to build a castle to Jesus. We just need to testify to the truth. And actually, Bonhoeffer says later on in the book, we don't need to dress up the gospel. We don't need to make, try to make it relevant. It is relevant by definition. We just need to speak it with grace and truth. And that's the wonderful thing. In that sense, the yoke is easy. All we need to do is live out and declare the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we see that God's ways are unexpected, but they're always just and merciful, and they're always filled with hope. Always. We see this throughout the Psalms. We see this in the prophets. And we see this in the crucifixion and the resurrection. There's always hope. And certainly we see this here because we see that there will be a holy seed. There will be a stump even after it's laid to waste again. Jesus is the holy seed. Jesus is the ultimate stump that brings that new life, that story of redemption that God is working out for all of us. He is the hope, the only hope that we have. And yes, there was a stump in the land left of Israelites. And God, as we can read later on in the prophets, they, they did return to the land, those that were exiled. They were able to rebuild the wall. But the ultimate salvation ultimately had to come through God himself, through Jesus. Again, the ultimate seed, the ultimate stump, the living coal that travels from heaven to earth to cleanse us and make us new. So I would ask, finally, in your day-to-day living, are you trusting that his timing and his plan is perfect? Whether that's in your work, in your relationships, in your community, in your school, in your studies, in your career plans, are you trusting that his timing is perfect and his plan is perfect without blemish? And just to hit on the hope, later on in this very book, we get a picture of the timing of God, which isn't always our timing. I can certainly speak from experience and say that. See me after if you want an elaboration. (laughs) Um, So in chapter 59 of Isaiah, we read verse 20 and 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is in you, who is on you, and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever, says the Lord. So I'd I'd finally ask, this by the way is 750 years about before the Redeemer comes. 
And I don't think Isaiah was expecting that, nor anyone else, just as Paul was expecting Jesus to come back in his lifetime. But his timing is perfect, and we need to trust that. And I would just finish by reiterating that Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament, and one of the things I love about this passage is he's so evident in this passage. He is the living coal. He is the living hope that we have. So let's turn to him afresh and worship the King, the Lord Almighty together. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do thank you again for this passage. We thank you for your spirit who is on us. And we pray that we would yield more to your spirit as we seek to eagerly serve you, knowing that we are made new when we turn to you. And that through you, we can do all things for your glory and for your sake. May it be so in Jesus' name. Amen.